Hello, welcome to the Revive for the Journey podcast, where we give you this week's message from Cove Church. We pray that it blesses you and helps you grow deeper in your journey with Christ. Enjoy. Well, hello, Cove Church. So great to be with you today as we talk about what it looks like to love others the way God loves us. That is really the drive of the final kingdom virtue we talk about today. And I'm referring to the virtue of charity. This ability to give of ourselves amidst a world that is often bent on taking. To seek love amidst so much hate. To pour out instead of holding on to. And, and, I, and I think it's that dynamic, that tension that we have to fight, right? When we look at the horrific events around the world, they continue to happen there, they continue to happen even here at home. And I think part of us naturally reacts with this desire to say, I want to get further away from people. I want to get further away from that whole mess. Let me, let me just find a cabin in the woods. Let me build a bunker somewhere. Let me start training myself to live off of tree bark and kale, which I think is the same thing, basically. Anything I can do to steer clear of the mess. Saying, if that's what the world looks like, then I want to distance myself from it. I want to turn inward. I want to take care of my own. But maybe, maybe God would lead us in a different way. You know, I was uh, just spending some time with Jesus last week, and, and in reading the word, I came across Philippians 1.23, where Paul says, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He's saying something there that I think a lot of us who love Jesus, we feel this a lot. He's saying, it would be way better to be in heaven. <laughs> and it doesn't mean there's not wonderful things here, and, and then we have family and friends and wonderful things here. But compared to heaven, this place is a dump, right? We get that. This is, this is not great. Heaven is way better than the best life you can have here on earth. Yet Paul says, yes, I, I want to be there. And even though I feel that way, he says, if I'm still here, it's because it's necessary. The question is necessary for what? what? What is it necessary for? It's necessary to the life and eternity of someone else. Others. That if you, friend, if you're still here, if you're still breathing, you're necessary. God still has a purpose for you. Now that doesn't mean your life will be comfortable. It doesn't mean everything will be easy. It simply means you're necessary. You're needed. If I'm not dead, then God's not done with me. And, and that really matters, I think, for us to be aware of. You know, in, in certain circles of firefighters, there is something known as the thin red line. It represents that last ounce of courage that firefighters find deep within their blood to conquer their darkest fears in order to protect life and property. It is a description of the quality that allows these brave men and women to run into the burning building 
while everyone else is running out of it. They do so because they operate in this high calling to save lives amidst a chaotic and increasingly dangerous environment. Could it be, friends, that Jesus is calling his followers to the same thing? That we too would cross a thin red line? In a culture that in so many ways, as we know, is on fire, politically, emotionally, spiritually, it, it's, it's on fire. But that instead of running from that pain around us in fear, could we run towards that pain in faith? That the same qualities of chaos and uncertainty that want to drive us from this world are also God's invitation compelling us into this world? That wave after wave of crisis and grief do not automatically have to create a sense of despair in us. Rather, those waves can create a sense of urgency. I have to go in. I have to do something. I have to help. As Paul said there, that we can know if I'm still here, then I'm necessary. If you're still here, then you are necessary. You are needed, and you are needed now. You know, there was this game we used to play in youth ministry. We would take those plastic spheres that, that they use for toddlers to teach them about shapes. So in the plastic, they have different shapes cut out, a star and a circle and a square and a rectangle. And, and they have these plastic versions of those shapes that are outside of, of the, the sphere. And so what you do as a toddler is they, they use it to match the shape. They match the star shape into the, the sphere and it goes inside when they get it right. And that's how toddlers learn shapes. And so we would use this with teenagers. And what we would do is we would sit them in the middle of a circle and we would give them that sphere with the shapes and we would have all the shapes on the floor around them. And we would set a timer for one minute and we would stand over them with pool noodles, okay? And they knew that if they weren't done with all of those shapes going into that sphere, if they weren't done after the minute was up, that they were gonna get bludgeoned by us. So can you ex just imagine the pressure they felt in that moment? It, it was a great game because so often they didn't get it and we just got to beat the tar out of them with pool noodles. It was so great. That was what made youth ministry fun. I could put the kids that were bothering me so much right in the circle when we just have at it. It was so incredible. Man, youth ministry was so fun until all the lawyers started to get involved. But man, it was just great. It, it was a great game. But, but I remember thinking that sense of urgency became so much greater when we knew that there was a time limit. Why do I bring that up? Jesus tells us there's a time limit on this whole thing. Jesus promises us that he's coming back, that there is this eternal clock that is counting down to the time of his return. In Matthew 24, Jesus described that time being marked by wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes in various places. Later, he says there will be distress and even persecution like we've never seen, and many will fall away from the faith as a result. 
That might sound a bit familiar, right? It seems like maybe we see a little of that right now. And he says, those are the beginnings of birth pains. These are the signs of my return, that the hourglass is nearing empty. And then in Matthew 24, 13, he says this, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. That part of this end of all things will include this great falling away from God's truth, but also a simultaneous great proclamation of God's truth in all places and to all people. So the question for us is this, who are the ones that do all of this proclaiming? Well, the answer, <laughs> you should look around you. Look who's near you, wherever you are, right there at home. Look, look at the person next to you. That's who's going to be doing the proclaiming. It's you and others. It, 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 it's us. See, the gospel that transforms the lives of others is shared by individuals whose lives have first been transformed by it. We carry this gospel. And, and I get it. I, I wouldn't pick me to do it either. I wouldn't pick me as the one to do this, but it doesn't matter. Why? Because if you're still here, you're needed. You're necessary. Why? Because that proclamation that we make, it ultimately brings about God's harvest. And so it's that harvest and the giving towards that harvest that we discussed today. On this weekend, we, we, it is this week traditionally that we, we give our harvest offering as a church. And as we are investing in seeing God's love shared throughout our community and our world, as we do so, we get to express this gift of charity. We get to talk about the harvest that Jesus spoke of. A harvest where he defines it as those who don't know him meet him, draw close to him, and who are changed by God's grace. And in that, we see the critical nature of God's harvest. And the first truth I would want to point out about it is this. Charity reminds us that harvest is now. Charity reminds us that the harvest is now. Uh, Matthew 9 is where we start, verse 35. Let's read it together right where you are. Big voices, go. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Everywhere Jesus went, the harvest followed. Everywhere he went, the harvest followed. He taught, he shared about the kingdom of God being at hand, and the result was healing of every disease and every affliction. And maybe we would say, well, of course, that's Jesus, right? I mean, you know, I'm just me, and I, that's a fair point. That's Jesus, I'm just me. Yet Jesus said something wild in John 14, verse 12. He said, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these. What does that mean? 
It means that the harvest does not only come about through Christ on earth, the harvest comes about through Christ in me. In me. There was this other time that Jesus was talking about the harvest, and he said this. He said, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Jesus is showing them, his disciples, that they were acting as though the harvest is for some other time, for some other person, for some other season. And he's telling them the truth that the harvest is now. He's telling those who love him that for you, the harvest is, is always now. So Jesus is telling us we, we can't wait. This is our run. We don't get another. We must make it count. And to do so, we get to run to win. Have you ever been on one of those diets that, that uh, you're on the diet for six days and then you have a cheat day at the end of the week? Like one day of the week you get a cheat day. And the rest of the week, you don't eat anything. You just eat like, like you eat bird seed for six days. But then on the seventh day, you, you get to eat whatever you want. And it's amazing how creative you can be if you get one day to eat whatever you want. You, if you want to eat as bad as humanly possible on that day, you can get super creative. I mean, you can eat bacon-wrapped bacon if you want, or you can, you can have peanut butter M&Ms as cereal, you know? You can, you can go to a petting zoo and be like, wow, petting zoo, that sounds like a great menu idea, you know? Just go like with a lamb and a goat and a cow, like a turducken, but with a lamb and a goat cow, a lamb goat cow, and just put it all together and I'll eat that, you know? Gravy no longer is a condiment, it's, it's a beverage on those days. In fact, I think the next logical step is just to hook up an IV with a gravy, and that's how we'll ingest it. Just so many creative ways that we can make that cheat day count. Now, how come I can view my cheat day that way, but I don't always view my life that way? I've got one shot, I've got one run, this is it, but often I live as though I just have plenty of time. I don't have that sense of urgency. Robert Moffat wrote, we'll have all eternity to celebrate our victories, but only one short hour before sunset to win them. There's an immediacy to the harvest that we miss. And God wants that to change in us because charity reminds us that the harvest is now. That's the first thing, here's the second. Charity reminds us that the harvest is near. Let's continue the passage, Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I love it that when Jesus saw these crowds of people, people of all different types, all different types of needs, I love that he wasn't annoyed with them. I love that Jesus wasn't frustrated with them. No, Jesus was moved. He, he didn't try to get farther away from them. Instead, he, he drew closer. 
As Jesus said in, in, in that John passage regarding the harvest, it simply, he simply says to them, lift up your eyes. It's right there, just lift up your eyes. The harvest is right here. It's where we are. All you have to do is look. It's near. Meaning we can lift our eyes and decide that we too are going to do our part in the harvest. We can then engage and, and pray and invest in the harvest. I, I mean, I think of people that do this so well, like some of our, our amazing volunteers at our church. I think of folks like Kathy and Jessica who, who volunteer with our Littlest Cove kids. I think of people like Bryant and, and Sean who welcome us every weekend with a smile and a hug. I think of Steve and Jan who's moving chairs and, and cleaning rooms to make sure we have a nice place to meet. And when they do so, they're not just greeting and teaching and working. They are preaching the gospel the best way they know how because they realize that the gospel is near to them. It's right here. It requires something of them. And so they're lifting their eyes to do their part and then trusting God to do his part, what only God can do. This is when the harvest becomes near. It's our work empowered by God's grace. And that process, friends, is usually never comfortable. I love Paul's rant about this in 2 Corinthians 11. He's just going through his life, like how uncomfortable his life has been. He's like, you know, five times I received 40 lashes less one. That's, that's a bummer. Five times that happened. He says, three times I was beaten with rods. He says, once I was stoned. Not in the way you're thinking, but once he was stoned, like with rocks. Three times he was shipwrecked. And on one of those times he's shipwrecked, he crawls out, right? Finally gets on land. He gathers around a fire to warm up and a snake crawls out of the fire and bites him. Poisonous snake bites him. I mean, that is totally like a come on moment, right? Like I've already had this really bad day and come on, now a snake bite at the end of all that? That is a come on moment. Now God did a miracle, he didn't die, it was incredible, but it was rough. He talks about being in danger from rivers and in danger from robbers and in danger from Jews and in danger from Gentiles and in danger from liars and in danger in the city and in danger in the country and in danger at sea and in danger on land. Now, was Paul called by God? Yes. Was it difficult at times? Yes. Why? Because God's calling does not guarantee our comfort. God's calling does not guarantee our comfort. Sometimes I'll get this question. People say, do you enjoy speaking, preaching, that sort of thing? Um, and um, I can only, my answer is usually something like this. I can only guess what this is like, but I think I enjoy it in the way a mom enjoys giving birth. Okay, it, it's not very comfortable. It's a really hard process. I'm, I'm usually fairly glad with the result, you know, most of the time. I think that's what it's like. It's work. This is what we have to remember regarding the harvest. The harvest is near, but it becomes attainable when we say yes to our part, to, to being okay with the work. And in doing so, we will then watch God do so much more than we could ever do. 
That happens when we understand that charity reminds us the harvest is near. And that's the second thing. Here's the last thing. Charity reminds us that the harvest is necessary. Matthew 9, 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Friends, the harvest does not reap itself. It requires others to do so. That's, that's how God has set this up. And those others, God calls the laborers, the, the workers in the harvest. So this tells us, then, that we do not have a harvest problem. We have a worker problem. The harvest is plentiful. It's, it's the workers that are few. So then, if we don't address the worker problem, we can then miss out on much of the harvest. Knowing that, it then becomes important for us to address the real needs regarding laborers in God's harvest. Perhaps even to look in some places that we have been slow to see when it comes to this. Maybe even to own some things as Christ followers that we need to own. See, there's two ways that harvest workers are released. One is by raising up brand new workers from scratch. You know, from babies, you just grow them up and you raise up new workers. But the second way is by healing up workers who have been wounded along the way. Because for those folks, they were at one point doing the work of the harvest, but they got hurt. And so now they're not doing the work of the harvest anymore. That's the second way we engage and release workers into the harvest. Friends, I have to tell you, the more I walk with Jesus, the more I encounter person after person who says to me after they find out I'm a pastor, they'll say, well, you know, I, I, I used to be involved in church. I, I was a worker in the harvest. They won't say that, but that's what they're saying. I, I did a lot of stuff. I taught Sunday school. I did all kinds of things. But then they'll say, but I got hurt. And they'll say, I don't do church anymore. I don't do that kind of work or volunteering anymore. Friends, if we are to see the laborers released that are so necessary for God's harvest to be fulfilled, we have to address the toxic systems and leadership structures that have been in place in church after church for decade upon decade. We have to get healthy for the harvest. Or it will not matter how quickly we raise up workers because we'll burn them out just as fast. I literally, in one of my journals, have lists, pages of names of people that I pray for because they have been burned and hurt by toxic church systems. These are leaders. These are laborers. They are workers. It is an army that's seated on the bench. 
If there is a reason that we would miss the harvest, it won't be because the harvest is not ready. It won't be because the harvest is not plentiful. No, we will miss the harvest because the workers are too damaged to work. And we have to own that. We have to repent of that and trust God to show us a new way, a way of health. If we take care of harvest workers, the harvest will be taken care of. See, regarding harvest workers, we must operate in a way that looks and sounds like Jesus. Because until we do that, we will end up missing what's right in front of us. In fact, I think part of God's harvest for his people in this season will include a harvest of those who have been wounded by the church. But we can refuse to see that, even though it's right in front of us. I know that because the disciples did the same thing. In John 4, when Jesus was talking again about the harvest, he was doing so in Samaria, all right? Now, you have to know, the disciples all had a built-in prejudice against Samaritans. Okay, they, they, they were raised to see them as half-breed Jews. They called them the stupid people. That was their little name for them. Samaritans for them were so hated that most respectable people went around Samaria when they traveled, even though that was the long way. But of course, Jesus being Jesus, he goes right through. And so Jesus is having this conversation about the harvest with Samaritans all around. And it's not a far leap to think that the disciples were like, hey, Jesus, tell us a little bit more about the harvest. And Jesus is like, well, it's right there. And the, the, the disciples are going, well, I, I, I can't see it. There's all these, all these dumb Samaritans everywhere. I, I can't see what you're referring to. Could you tell us again about the harvest? And Jesus says, yeah, it's right there. And they say, hold on, Jesus. I'm having a tough time hearing you because all of these filthy Samaritans keep interrupting and asking questions about faith. If they could stop that, that would be great. Could you tell us again about the harvest? And again, Jesus says the harvest is right there. I don't think it is a reach to, to say that the, the disciples looked, but they didn't see. And I think the same can be true for us as a church especially regarding those who are wounded. We kind of let ourselves off the hook. Well, they didn't, they didn't have what it took. You know. Well, they gave up. They, they, they fell away. Though they chose the world over the church. Is that really the whole story? And Jesus is saying, would you look up? There is your harvest. It includes wounded workers. It includes the people you've written off. And I'm calling you to see them so they can be made whole. The harvest will require us to look to Jesus and then trust Jesus to show us who we are looking past. To see the, that the fields, they are white unto the harvest. They're ready to be harvested. To see that wounded worker, God, 
let me see them. To see the, the needy person and the broken person, God, let me see. To see that person that is totally self-sufficient but empty, let me see. I, I get to do my part. We get to do our part, which is to look, but it's God who lets us see. And until God does that, I can miss the harvest that is right before my eyes. And I don't want to miss it. I think I've missed it at times in my life. I don't want to miss it. Because charity reminds us that the harvest is necessary. It must be brought in by harvest laborers. I'll wrap up with this. One of, one of the most unique sporting events in the world is the Iditarod sled race in Alaska. Each year, riders who are known as mushers and their dogs, they race more than a thousand miles for several days in the Alaskan snow. They race from Anchorage, Alaska to Nome, Alaska. It's now a sporting event, but the genesis of the Iditarod is something very different. It comes from in 1925, there were hundreds of children in Nome that had been exposed to diphtheria. And at this point in history, children around the world were dying from this highly contagious disease because widespread vaccinations had not yet been introduced. Now, the only serum to combat that disease was far away in Anchorage. To get the serum to Nome quickly, it was first carried by a train to Nenana, and then teams of riders and their dogs strategically placed along the path carried the serum to Nome by a relay. It took more than 150 dogs, 20 mushers. They were all involved in this heroic effort, which became called the Great Race of Mercy. With passion and intensity, the mushers hurtled the 300,000 units of life-saving serum across the Alaskan countryside, arriving in Nome in only 127 hours, a record that is yet to be broken. Friends, if you have a relationship with Jesus, you are a musher in the race of mercy, where God invites us to be part of his team in that race. And this is a race that decides life and death. It's a race that we call the harvest. And as we race, we understand that the harvest is now and it's near and it's necessary. So all of us, we need God to help us see, to brave the harsh paths of this culture in hopes of delivering the antidote of Christ to an infirmed world. The harvest, friends, is critical. It's urgent. That's why we invest in it in times like this, which means for all of us, we, we can pray for how we're going to do that and pray for the healing and release of laborers, allowing us ultimately to see God's great harvest coming. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. To stay connected with all things Cove Church, visit our website, covechurchpnw.com.
or on all social media platforms at Cove Church PNW. We'll see you next time.